0: Well, about 13 months ago, I had one of those sort of life-changing, world-altering, I knew I would never, ever, ever, ever be the same moments. I mean, you know those moments, right? When you see your, your bride walking down the aisle for the first time, you witness the birth of your kids, or you move to a new, new city. Those, those times in life when you know that there's just no going back at that point. I mean, it's both exhilarating and terrifying all at once, isn't it? We've all, we've all had the, those moments. Well, well, for me, a, a year ago, this, this moment came, and even while I was in the midst of it, I knew that there was no going back. That, that, that was the day when I had my very first In-N-Out cheeseburger. <sighs> Double-double animal-style, mouth-watering goodness. And if you think I'm exaggerating, it's only because you've never been there. I mean even now I'm thinking how could I ever possibly be content you know with another fast food cheeseburger as long as I live right it's it's life-changing I, and I knew it at that moment and and we've all had those moments some of them trivial I suppose I do love food a little too much I'm working on it but you know cut me some slack uh, some of them trivial but some of them come with so much substance don't they? Uh, kids, it's the moment when you get your driver's license, right? Or you graduate from college, or you start your first job, or, or maybe even more broadly for all of us, it's, it's an encounter with something overwhelmingly beautiful, right? If you've, you've had those moments, or, or, or when you hear a story that's so beautiful, so rich, it feels like someone's reached inside you and grabbed you by the soul. And you just know that Everything changes, right? We're so easily changed by, by those moments, those, those encounters of something so much bigger than ourselves, too wonderful for words, and we know that life can never be the same again. In many ways, it's, it's sort of like that old word transcendence. It's not a word we use all that often anymore, but transcendence, this, this experience or this encounter with something that's completely outside of ourselves, that's totally other. And you know you've been changed. And in the Bible, there is this crazy story about this guy named Isaiah. We just heard it right a moment ago. And Isaiah had an experience like this, but really an experience like none other. For Isaiah encountered God. And in that moment, nothing in his life could ever be the same which I think demonstrates for us a really profound truth that you have not encountered God unless you've been changed by him. Let that sink in for a moment. Because you might think, you know, that you've encountered God and yet you cannot leave the presence of God unchanged. Have I really encountered him? You've not encountered God unless you've been changed by him. And the reality is, all of us, regardless of whether we admit it or acknowledge it or not, regardless of our, our background or, or our system of beliefs, all of us have encountered God to some extent. And I, I mean, I really believe that whether it's in the beauty of his creation or that internal sense of right, right and wrong, or even the unceasing longings that we have on our heart that life would be about so much more, and we encounter him in, in his word and through his people. We, we encounter him in all kinds of places. We've all encountered God to some extent. And to encounter God is to be changed by him. But not every change is positive, actually. Because the reality is you can encounter God and want more of him or less of him. Uh, you can encounter God and acknowledge it or just completely ignore it, try to brush it away. But either way, you've been changed by it. It's just part of what it means to, to encounter him. Because here at the, end of the, at the end of the day, either he's right and I'm wrong or I'm right or, and he's wrong, there is no neutral ground in the presence of God. You cannot encounter God and not be changed by him. So as we look at this incredible story, I think there are three questions in particular that, that jump out at me. First of all, Who is God? Uh, not not just who do we imagine him to be, who do we want him to be, but who is he really? As as revealed in this book, who is God? Second, how do we know that we've encountered him? And third, what's the alternative? So first, who is God? Well, we're in Isaiah chapter 6, as we enter this section of the Old Testament called the Prophets. If you've been with us this year, we're going through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, kind of this quick flyover, hitting on all these major sections, just to help us understand what is this book, what is this story really about from cover to cover? And so this morning, we enter into the Prophets. This is the last section of the Old Testament. This will take us through the summer, it means we're about halfway through our time together in the Bible. So the prophets, we've got to remember, they, they were writing back during the time of the kingdom of Israel, back when everything was still falling apart. Or some of them shortly thereafter, after everything already had fallen apart. The, the prophets were sent by God to grab his people's attention, to, to turn them back to him before it was too late. In some ways, it's kind of helpful, I think, to to imagine the prophets like these living love letters sent by God as an attempt to win back his beloved. Of course, every one of these attempts failed. We are persistent to this day in our rejection of him. And although Isaiah proclaimed judgment on God's people, Isaiah's name literally means Yahweh saves for even in the midst of judgment, there is hope in God's redemption. So here we are, Isaiah chapter 6. And this, this here, this, this story is really the, the beginning of his career as a prophet, right? This is, this is how he gets his start. This is when he encounters God. In verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, now, that tells us we're back in, in 70, 740 BC. This is back in the time of Second Kings and Second Chronicles. And Uzziah was a, a wicked king. Uh, but he reigned in the midst of Israel's incredible prosperity, right in a time when they couldn't be richer, more powerful, stronger as a people, and yet growing more and more convinced that they didn't really need Yahweh. I mean, you know, they, they had everything they needed, they thought. And they, they were growing more and more self-sufficient, but in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah has this vision of another king. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so Isaiah sees this manifestation of God himself high and exalted right there on his throne, right? The the true king, the king that the people of Israel had rejected long ago and Isaiah sees him It says that the, the train of his robe, actually it filled up the temple and these seraphim, literally angels of fire, surrounded him. As best as you can, you know, put yourself in that scene. It's, just, it's hard to even imagine, but try to, try to be there in that moment, there in the presence of this manifestation of God himself and all of his majesty and glory sitting on his throne, the true king of everything. All these fiery creatures fly about and one calls aloud to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it says that the earth shook and that the temple filled with smoke. And so who is God? Well, how would Isaiah answer that question? What I think is really interesting is after this point in his life and for the next 60 chapters in the book of Isaiah, he would regularly refer to God as the Holy One of Israel. About 30 times, actually, and he uses that title for God more than any other biblical writer. So I think at the end of the day, from this experience, Isaiah would say, if God is anything at all, he's holy. That's kind of an old churchy word, isn't it? Holy. What does, that, what does that even mean, right? And even the fact that these angels, that they, they chanted out three times there in the, in the presence of God. Some have said maybe, maybe there's some Trinitarian impl- implications there. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. Or, or maybe it's just for intensification that God, he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. But, but what, is, what does that even mean? Holiness. Well, one theologian summarizes it with a, a fairly simple prayer. Some of you probably learned it as kids. Maybe some of you kids uh, know this one. Uh, it's essentially, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for this food. Anybody, you're familiar with that, right? Not, not to be confused with rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. This one has a little bit more theology to it. God is great, God is good, and we thank You for this food. And he writes that the two virtues assigned to God in this prayer, greatness and goodness, Maybe captured by one biblical word "holy." And so even though it's sort of a strange word for us, holiness, it's this idea on the one hand that God is great and on the other that He's good. Well, how, what, what do we even mean by that? Well, we see it in Isaiah: God's greatness. I mean, this is, this is the idea that God is high and exalted above all, that there is nothing that we can even begin to compare him to, that he is completely other, that the king, majestic, lifted up. Holiness means that God is completely set apart. He's in a category all by himself, which is why these fiery angels can't help but worship. There is no one like him, not even close. But He's also good. And his goodness is probably what many of us most quickly think about when we think of his holiness. His absolute moral perfection, right? That he's perfectly righteous, that he never, never does anything wrong, that there isn't even a shadow of wrong in him. That he doesn't just meet the standard of goodness, that he is the standard of goodness. A.W. Tozer summarizes this perfectly. He says, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. And we can't even imagine what this is. And so the angels cry out the whole earth is full of his glory everywhere we turn there's glory this this idea of beauty or weight or, or worth or, or value this this awestruck wonder that is God this is our God Isaiah saw him and I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess that none of us have had an experience like that. Is that probably a safe assumption but have you, have you encountered him? Well, I mean, I think so. I mean, I go to church. I'm a fairly spiritual person, I suppose. But I think I have. But, but how do I know if I've encountered him? Well, remember what we said at the start. You haven't encountered him unless you've been changed by him. Because we've got to keep in mind, even, even adding to this, because all of us need to wrestle with this. Have I truly encountered If, if we understand you know, what Jesus says in the New Testament later on, he says that there'd be there'd be plenty of people who um, think they know him, who say they know him, who look like they know him, who really don't know him at all. And so we've all got to wrestle with this. Have you encountered him? Now, I think the trouble is, what makes it even more difficult for us is that the God many of us imagine, or maybe more accurately, the God many of us have created for ourselves, he's really not holy at all. I mean, really, right? And he's not all that concerned with with your sins, at least not your favorite sins. I mean, he doesn't like the sins of the people around you, right? You and God agree on that. But your own sins, he's a little bit more loose on. Isn't that kind of how we... Let's be honest, right? That tends to be how we work. So he's not that holy, and he's, he's not that much greater than us. I mean, honestly, I mean, if we were to be truthful, for many of us, God looks a lot like we do, doesn't he? In our, in our minds, the way we imagine him. Likes the same things, that kind of thing. In fact, I, I saw uh, this past weekend at Barnes & Noble, we were just kind of killing some time, um, a magazine cover that, that struck me, and Chris brought it out to me again this, this week. It's from the latest Ad Buster's. Um, And and at first, I mean, it's kind of a a strange image. It may conjure up kind of a reminder of the the Sistine Chapel, right? The divine hand reaching out to to the human hand. This this picture of of God and our relationship with God. But, I mean, that was painted hundreds of years ago. Uh, This is a little bit more accurate, probably, in a 21st century approach to who God is. Because what's going on in in this picture is, if you look closely, it's actually just one hand reaching out to its own reflection in a mirror. That kind of summarizes it pretty well, doesn't it? I mean, for many of us, the, the God that we imagine, that we think we, we worship and, and follow, I mean, he's, he's not the holy one. He's not the God of this, birth, but perfectly and infinitely other. Many of us who have a, have a God who strangely looks a lot like we do, don't we? I mean, ask yourself, does your God always affirm everything about you? always agree with all your choices and agree with all your opinions. He hates all the same people you hate, and he likes all the same things that you like. It's a little suspicious, isn't it? But if we're honest, that probably summarizes a lot of us, doesn't it? I mean, if your God never confronts you, there's a good chance you haven't met the true God. Really more miraculous there's probably a good chance that you are your own God, because the real God never leaves us unchanged. You haven't encountered the real God unless you've been changed by him. So, so how do I know that I've encountered him? Well, look at this, the story again. Three things happen in this, this story in particular. It starts off with this, this scene of, of, of desperate repentance, and then God intervenes with atoning forgiveness. And then Isaiah responds with with lifelong devotion. Verse 5, still in chapter 6, the first words out of Isaiah's mouth, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Did you see his desperation? He's, He's saying, I am as good as dead. I have seen God. I know my sins and I can't how could I possibly stand in his presence before the Holy One? And I think it's really interesting that this comes here in Isaiah. For most of the prophets, um, their encounter with God is at the beginning of their book, right? That's what sort of starts it off. And then they, they write and they preach to Israel. That's, that's typically how it goes. But it's so interesting to me that Isaiah's is six chapters in. So what are the first five chapters of Isaiah? It's basically Isaiah saying over and over, Woe to you, Israel! Woe to you for this and for that and for all of your crimes against God, which was completely legitimate. And yet here, when he stands in the presence of God, he cannot help but say, woe is me. I mean, it's pretty easy to point out the sins of others. We're all really good at that. But when you encounter the real God, the true God, you cannot help but be struck with your own desperation, with your own sense of sinfulness. And we see that there with with Isaiah. He knows that he's betrayed the Holy One. He sees his sins, he sees the sins of his people, and he responds with absolute terror in the presence of God. He deserves judgment and death, and he knows it. But his desperation, it's not an end in itself. His his desperation leads him to this this kind of repentance, to see his sins, to to confess them before God, and then eventually to, to turn from them, to repent of them. And so picture yourself in that temple. I know it's hard to do, but just imagine you there in that place, standing before the standard of goodness, not, not, the, not the God of your own reflection, the God for whom there is no comparison, and he knows everything about you, he knows, let's be honest, how much we hate him most times, he, he knows how much you run from him. He knows the things that you depend on instead of him and the things that you love so much more than them. He sees the very depths of the darkest places of your heart as you stand there before him. Woe is me. And you know, I've always loved the, the children's series, the Chronicles of Narnia. They're just, they're just one of my favorites ever since I was a kid. It's even more fun now. Going back, we've started reading these with our kids and just seeing them engage. I mean, these stories were written 60 years ago. I mean, they're they're old, and if you don't know anything about them, I mean, they're kind of this mystical world, right? They're kind of fantasy kids' books, talking animals, mythical creatures. I mean, they're they're brilliant if you like that sort of thing, uh, and they're written by this guy Lewis. He was a C.S. Lewis. He was an atheist uh, at Oxford and Cambridge. Became a, a follower of Jesus and. F- with, throughout the Chronicles of Narnia, these seven books, there's all kinds of biblical images, uh, allusions to the story that, that we tell here from this, this book, the Bible. Um, and, and so it has, has a lot of that. It's a lot of fun. But there's one scene in particular from the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Ward that I had, I had completely forgotten about until reading it a couple months ago with the kids. It's the scene right after Aslan, Aslan has risen from the dead. Aslan is the, the great massive lion. He's, he's clearly the Christ figure, right? The godlike lion in this, in this mystical story. And he's risen from the dead, and the first two witnesses are uh, Lucy and Susan, these two little girls. And in response, seeing him alive again, this one that they've loved so much, they dance and they sing and they play and they jump and they laugh, right? And you just picture that, right? These two little girls with this massive lion but I love how Lewis describes it. He says, it was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. Most of us are probably pretty good at picturing God like a kitten. You know, cuddly and cute, you know, lovable and affectionate and and all of that. But I love the tension that Lewis creates. God is like a kitten in that sense. He is loving and affectionate. And yet at the same time, he's a thunderstorm. He's not to be trifled with. Picture the, the lightning and hear the thunder, the roar of the winds whipping and whirling and thrashing. Our God is not to be trifled with. Ask yourself, am I desperate before this God? Because really, one of, the, one of the clearest indicators of whether or not you've met the real God or simply the God of your imagination is whether or not you're desperate in front of him. And while there is hope when we encounter him, if you don't feel desperate, there's a good chance you haven't met him yet. And when we, when we feel that desperation, deep within, that, that sense of fear and awe before this, this God who is holy, And it leads to this idea of repentance. God never leaves us there. He offers us, just as he offered Isaiah, this this idea of of atoning forgiveness, simply out of his love and grace, Not, not because we deserve it, not because we prove how desperate we are or how good we are at repenting, but simply because this is who God is. Verse six, it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And God is the one who initiates. He's, he's the one who, who takes our sin, who, who offers us forgiveness. When we come to God in faith, recognizing the seriousness of our sin, he doesn't leave us there. He makes a way For Isaiah to stand in the presence of God, safe and secure, he atones for sin. He takes away that guilty stain of our shame and our brokenness. He separates us as far as the east is from the west. There's nothing that Isaiah could have done to make himself good enough. not Not a single thing. It's not about how sorry we are for our sins or how hard we try to simply stop sinning. It's not good enough and yet he never leaves us in our despair he makes a way only god can forgive if you want to know if you've if you've truly encountered god ask yourself do i trust him for forgiveness because the reality is you can feel bad about your sins right many of us do you can even feel desperate for, for a whole lot of reasons, right? For, for the way they make you feel afterwards, the consequences, or some sort of you know, social relationship. They, we can feel bad about our sins pretty easily without having God in the picture at all. But if that's all it is, I mean, if, if all you ever try to do, or all you ever do is try to stop sinning or to, to simply make yourself feel better about yourself, you haven't really encountered him because when you encounter him, you know there's no possible way to stand. There's nothing you could possibly, it doesn't matter how good you are, what kind of face you put on, it doesn't, there's nothing. If you've met him, you can't possibly stand on your own. Maybe another way of asking the same question is, um, what do you depend on in your life uh, for your moral standing, you know, to, to feel good about yourself? To know that you're a good person or that God loves you. What are the things that you look to, that you depend on? Is it church attendance? Is it your track record? Is it, uh, is it the, the, that long list of things you try to avoid and mostly avoid or the long list of things that you try to do and, you know, mostly mostly do? The reality is if you've met him, you know none of those things are going to cut it. You can't help but trust him for forgiveness. But it doesn't end there for Isaiah. I think sometimes, for myself, for many of us, I think we'd prefer for it to kind of end there, doesn't it? You know, I felt bad about my sins. Um, I trust God for forgiveness, and now I can just sort of move on, right and be done with it. Well, it's not exactly how it goes for Isaiah. because when he encounters God, it leads to lifelong devotion. I think it's so interesting that even in this, this space of just maybe a few minutes, Isaiah, the first words out of his mouth are, Woe is me. And now here towards the end, the last, he says, here I am. From woe is me to here I am. Send me, he says. Verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he's got no idea at this point, right? Right? I mean he has he has no clue what's going on. He doesn't ask for any details or clarifications, loopholes, or long-term benefits. All he knows is that he has encountered God. God has asked him to do something. Here I am. I mean, it's as if there, there is no other more natural response there in the presence of God. It's it's all that he can do. When you've encountered God, you're you're either all in or you're all out. And Isaiah jumps in head first what was in store for him? I mean, this guy had no idea. I mean, maybe if he knew some of the details, he may have thought twice about it. I mean, it it was a hard road. In fact, the next few things, the next few verses that God talks to Isaiah is that you're you're gonna have a treacherous road, Isaiah. You're gonna be a hated prophet. In fact, Jewish tradition says that Isaiah the prophet died by being sawed in two by his own people for his lifelong devotion to God. But that's not the point. At this point, all that matters is he's encountered God and God said, do this. And so he's in. It kind of reminds me of another scene in Narnia. Sorry about that, but kind of on a kick right now with the family. Uh, but it's from a different book, The, the Horse and His Boy. A similar, similar theme, similar setting, right, in this mystical world. Uh, but it's a scene when this horse, when encounters the lion Aslan, okay? Again, massive lion. He's the, the Christ figure in, in the story. And so picture the, the horse and lion meeting for the first time. I mean, any, any horse in his right mind, right, would be terrified, right, in, in the presence of a lion. And here's what it says. Then Huen, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I know it's weird, all right? It's mystical, talking animals. And, you know, for some of you, it's like, yeah, it's just strange, isn't it? And yet think about what's said there. In the presence of God, I'd rather be devoured by you than fed by anyone else. God, I'd, I'd rather you take anything and everything, all that I am, all that I have, whatever, my reputation, my family, my stuff. I'd rather you take all of it than ever receive anything from anyone else ever again. Essentially, that's, that's Isaiah's response. Have you encountered him? Now ask, ask yourself will I do what he asks? there's a pretty good chance that he's not going to ask you to be a prophet. You know, there's probably a good chance he's not going to ask you to be a pastor or missionary. For, for most of us, God's plan is for us to serve him wherever he has put you in whatever area in your life, your role, whatever that looks like, that's, that's where, but what is he asking you to do? Is it something at school? Something at work with your family? Is there a relationship that just needs a good conversation or, or needs you to apologize or to extend forgiveness is there is there someone that that you need to share the gospel with or invite to church or is there something that you know deep down you just love way too much that God would probably prefer that you just give it up altogether what is he asking you to do have you met him if so what are you waiting for you haven't encountered God unless you've been changed by him and none of us are perfect Not one of us has this figured out. There's no one here who even comes close to measuring up. But you haven't encountered God unless you've been changed by him. But but remember what I said right at the beginning. that There's a sense in which we've all encountered God. In one way or another. We've all been changed by God in one way or another. Every one of us. The example we see with Isaiah is positive change, but not every change is positive. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative to responding to God like Isaiah? The alternative is responding like the people of Israel. Because this is what God tells Isaiah to tell the people. This is sort of his stump speech, right? As a prophet, God says, go and say this. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. And what he's saying there, and what he goes on to continue to say is, you're going to, you're going to preach to these people over and over again. You're going to give them glimpses of who I am. You're going to tell them all. About. They're not going to hear a word of it. They're going to hear it, but they're not going to hear it. They're going to see it, but they're not going to see it. And ultimately, it's going to lead to their judgment, to their demise. Because the people also encountered God. Isaiah is not, not the only one. And yet his lifetime of sermons was little more than judgment. If you've encountered God, there's really just two options. There's the, the path of Isaiah that we see here played out before us, this incredible response to this, this holy God. Or there's the path of, of Israel, hearing God but refusing to understand, getting little tiny glimpses of God but refusing to to see God is always moving toward us, but we're either moving toward him or away from him. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground in the presence of God. At the end of the day, you either say, woe is me, or God, get away from me. You either say, here I am, or God, to hell with you. I want nothing to do with you. Those are the options. Which will it be? And Jesus, he even picks up on this in the Gospel of John. He even quotes some of these exact words from Isaiah that some will encounter him and be wonderfully changed by him, but many, most even, will encounter him and just keep getting harder. And it's, it's kind of a scary thing to think about, isn't it? And have I really encountered him? Have I, have I really been changed by him? It's something I've had to wrestle with this week, thinking through this text and, this, and this, this story. It's really had to wrestle with it. Maybe that freaks you out a little bit, thinking about your pastor, wondering if he's ever actually encountered God. But let's be honest, we're all pretty good at going through the motions, aren't we? Every one of us. And I know deep within my own inadequacies, am I desperate before God? Well, I mean, sometimes the mood sets me right, you know whatever. Do I, do I depend on him for my forgiveness? Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes, but I'm also, I'm also stinking self-righteous. Man, I can be self-righteous, judgmental of others, thinking I'm so great, which is essentially a sign that I'm standing on my own two feet, right? Not depending on, on this God to save me. Will I do what he wants? I mean, well, it's not too hard, right? when it doesn't get in my way all that much, then sure, yeah, I will, and woe is me. You know, even though we feel this tension, I mean, if it's your desire to follow and seek this God, we, we feel this tension of what ought to be in our lives and what really is, and yet we cannot forget what Isaiah's name means. Yahweh saves in fact, we'll see next week, we'll look at three different passages that, that talk about how Yahweh intends to save 800 years later. But we know, don't we, it's through his son. That, that for, for you and me, we don't just merely get glimpses of this king on a throne. We have a king who left his throne, who came to this earth to, to offer us forgiveness, not merely a burning coal on our lips, but who gave up his body for us allowed it to be broken, who died and rose again. So that he is our, our ultimate atonement, our, the one who ultimately forgives our sins and, and offers us to take, to take our guilt away. He is the ultimate one who said to the Father, here I am, send me. For our God doesn't simply come to us in prophets. He himself came, he sent his son He gave his life so that we can live together with him, that we can know him and grow in him, that we can stand in the presence of this holy God, that we can receive the joy and the flourishing of a life that truly comes, lived out before the God who made us. That is why he came, and no matter how far we run, no matter how much we reject him, no no matter how much deep down, let's be honest, we hate him, no matter what, he will keep pursuing us. Have you met him? Let's pray. God, I am truly amazed that you allow someone as unholy as me to stand in your holy presence. God, I'm amazed that you are a God unlike any other, unlike anything that we can even imagine. And yet you pursue us, that you love us, that you long to be with us, that you sent your Son to make a way that we could stand in your presence, that we could know you and love you and experience life as we were designed to live it. God, I pray that we would embrace that. I pray that we'd be gripped by your holiness that we would feel the desperation within us, but that we keep turning to you, knowing that in Jesus, we are forgiven. We are safe and secure in your love and that you call us your sons and daughters. There's simple faith in you. So God, I pray that now together we would cry aloud with the angels. Holy, 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 that we would worship you, that we would delight in your glory and that you would be so gracious as to give us even a tiny glimpse of your presence. We pray this for Jesus' sake, amen.